Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The categories religion and race share a common genealogy. The modern understanding of these terms emerges within the European Enlightenment, but grasping their gradual production requires us to investigate further. In Modern Religion, Modern Race, Theodore Weil argues that the intersection of religion and race can be better understood by looking at the work of 19th century German romantics. In the post-Enlightenment period, religion becomes a racialized category. Weil examines the writings of Friedrich Schleiermacher, Max Müller, and Johann Gottfried Herder in order to outline the linked nature of race and religion as social categories. He puts their definitions and positions to work to determine the conceptual framework these authors deploy for theorizing difference. In our conversation, we discuss Immanuel Kant on race, Schleiermacher as theologian and scholar of religion, the symbolic power of Max Müller within contemporary religious studies, the role of language and nation in the construction of religion and race, W.E.B. Du Bois, theological anthropology, analyzing Australian Aborigines, and the legacy of 19th century German constructions of race and religion for religious studies today. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Ted Vile about his book, Modern Religion, Modern Race, published with Oxford University Press in 2016. Welcome, Ted. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. So this this book, Modern Religion, Modern Race, uh, this was a very interesting read for me. Um, you're tackling some really important topics, and uh, I think people that are in the field of religious studies will really uh, benefit because you're really talking about kind of the development of our field as well. Um, but before we get to the book itself, uh, our tradition here is to start with a little kind of uh, biography of the author. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you came to the study of religion, perhaps uh, mentors or moments that have been significant in kind of shaping your uh, the, the kind of questions you ask or the way you go about answering them? Yeah, sure. So let, let me uh, maybe say two things about that. One's more personal and one's more academic. My, my family is very religious. Uh, and I'm not. And and so I, I think I was predisposed to study religion because they're I love them and they're smart. And I always wondered, you know, what what was going on? Why they, why is this stuff so important to them? Uh, so th- so that was uh, kind of in me from a young age. Uh, when I got to college, I thought I was going to be a philosophy major. So I like reading 
philosophical arguments and I thought I would learn sort of what was true. Um, and then I, I quickly realized that what was more interesting was the question of why certain things make sense to people in their historical cultural context. Uh, and that's what they did in the religious studies department where I was. I had the fortune of um, taking a Judaic studies class with Jacob Neusner, uh, who was this amazing, you know, sort of one of the founders of the academic study of, of, of Judaism. Uh, and his approach of asking, of like studying the Mishnah and asking questions about, you know, what was their world like? What did it look like to them such that these sort of very opaque arguments made sense and were important was exactly what I wanted to do. And then I had another mentor in college, uh, Wendell Dietrich, who studied 19th century German Protestantism. Uh, and I loved reading that stuff, you know, the Schleiermacher and Trelch and Kant and Hegel and all those guys. Um, and so I, I sort of thought I would like to do what Jacob Neusner does with this 19th century German theology stuff, be a sort of historian of religions and not ask theological questions, but ask, uh, ask more sort of, uh, you know, contextual social questions about why, you know, why does, why does the religion take the form it does at this time and place and what are the influences? Now, this book, uh, you, you might not be able to tell kind of what you're dealing with um, from the title. And knowing a little bit about your background, I know that uh, it's related to some of your other uh, research and scholarship. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book and how, how you thought about putting it together? Yeah. Okay, good. So, so let me just say that I wrote my dissertation on a super obscure figure just because the secondary literature was manageable. <laughs> and then I realized that if I ever wanted to publish something that somebody would read, I had to tackle sort of more prominent people. And so uh, my advisor, uh, Brian Garrish in graduate school, was, was one of the great Schleiermacher scholars. Uh, and so I started working intensively uh, on Schleiermacher, who is an important theological figure in 19th century Protestantism, but he's also a very important figure kind of in the history of the study of religion. Um, and so I had been asking sort of, I had published stuff on sort of Schleiermacher's theology and, and German nationalism and what the, what the relationship is there. Uh, I teach at, a, at Eilish School of Theology, which is um, a very progressive graduate school and it has maybe the most diverse, racially diverse faculty in the study of religion in the country. Uh, and some of my colleagues sort of challenged all of us to think about the way that the question of race has been handled in our subdisciplines. Uh, and I, I was for a long time a very active member in the 19th century theology group at the American Academy of Religion. And I went back through all the programs and th there had never been anything about race ever in that group. Uh, and so I started to think about, uh, um, you know, why that was and, and, and if what I studied had anything to do with race. And, and it, uh, unsurprisingly, I guess at the end of the day, I discovered that what I study has everything to do with race and it may be the most important thing. <laughs> so um, the, even from the title already, we're dealing with a lot of uh, <laughs> big, big topics, race, religion, modernity. Yeah. Um, and uh, in in my reading, it seems that one of the major arguments you're trying to make, um, and th there's probably several uh, lines of thought going through the book, but one is that religion, the category of religion and the category of race, share a common genealogy. Yeah. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit about where does their shared production begin? Uh, in what ways are they linked? 
Um, and you're you're also kind of making a big claim about uh, moving past the Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, so why exactly why right. do we need to maybe maybe kind of outline this kind of Enlightenment uh, construction of their uh, creation, and then why do we need to move past that to really understand them in in complex ways? Yeah. Okay. That's 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 really the key question. Lots so, of questions. I know. Yeah. I, like, feel free. <laughs> so if you look at so right now the the study of religion is in a very sort of navel gazing moment where we where we've gotten tired of trying to say what religion is and instead we're, we've been doing genealogy for twenty or thirty years and figuring out sort of the history of the category and all of those genealogies uh, end with the Enlightenment. So if you if you um, read somebody like. I don't know, uh, Richard King or Talal Assad or Jose Casanova, they, they talk about the shift in, in what we mean by the, sort of this Western constructed category of religion. And it always tends to end, uh, you know, with the Enlightenment. And the same thing happens with genealogies of race. If you read, if you read say, Cornell West or Jay Cameron Carter or Willie Jennings, they, they talk a lot about uh, – some people locate the history of race starting, say, in the second century. Some people start later, but it always peters out with sort of David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Uh, and and uh, so I focus my academic life mostly on the people who are uh, the, the early 19th century German. They get called expressivists or they get called romantics. Um, people like Herder and Schleiermacher. Hegel gets counted in this group by by Charles Taylor. Um they're, they're influenced by the Enlightenment, but they, they, they move beyond it uh, or critique it in some ways. Uh, and I guess I buy the argument, uh, the sort of famous intellectual historian Isaiah Berlin, that the, the last sort of great reshaping of Western categories and consciousness is, in fact, this post-Enlightenment, sometimes called counter-Enlightenment movement. Uh, and it gives us, you know, it, it gives us the categories that we sort of are born with and seem natural to us. Uh, you know, what is what is religion? Uh, if you read Tomoko Masazawa's book, The Invention of World Religions, I mean, I think she's right. It, it shifts in the 19th century, and by the 20th century, everybody thinks they know what sort of a living world religion is. Uh, I, th I think the, the manufacture or the construction of that category isn't done in the Enlightenment. It happens a lot with Schleiermacher and Herder and, and that generation. Uh, and I think also the way we think about race does. Uh, and the fact that they're sort of mutually formed and share a common genealogy led me to suspect, and, and this is what I try to indicate or even argue in the book, uh, that even when we're not talking explicitly about race, just the category of religion that we use as scholars of religion when we do comparative religions, or even when people on the street talk about the category of religion, it's already a racialized category uh, in, in many sort of deep and important ways that we have to be aware of, or we're just going to, you know, if, if you look at the sort of older scholars in our tradition, they just look racist and horrible. Uh, and, and I think unwittingly we're repeating some of their same categories unless we sort of very self-consciously reflect on the racialized nature of our categories. Hmm. Now, uh, I think it's important for, uh, for the argument to, to start with Kant here. Um, and this is where you, you begin kind of the, your analysis. Um, so, uh, what would you say is Kant's role in the modern construction of the category of race? Um, how did he define it? Why was he writing about it in general? Yeah. Okay. So those are great questions. Uh, um, there's a huge booming uh, fight in the secondary literature on Kant about his role in the construction of race. 
um, uh, it, which is still sort of ongoing. And and the argument goes, this is so, sort of, say, Robert Bernasconi's argument, uh, and J. Cameron Carter makes it too, that before Kant, the, the word and the concept race was very uh, sort of messy and there was no sort of agreed upon, um, it wasn't a fixed concept at all. And that, and that whatever else Kant does, uh, he, he helps us fix the category of race in the way we talk about it today. And, and what, what I mean by that is that, um, is that Kant isn't the only one to do this, but he, with his prestige and his influence, he sort of establishes race uh, as meaning uh, a race is a biological category and to be part of the same race uh, means that um, uh, any that you're part of a species, any two any two members of a species uh, who can interbreed and produce uh, uh, fertile offspring are part of a species. Kant argues there is just one human species, right? So that's good. He gets that right. Many people in his day get that wrong, right? But then there's certain traits that get passed on inevitably, and certain traits that don't get passed on inevitably. And race is one of the traits that gets passed on inevitably, according to Kant. Um, uh, and so he he sort of fixes the definition of race as a biologically inherited uh, sort of immutable category. And ever since then, that's sort of how we think about race. If you have sort of two white European parents, you're going to get a white European kid. And if you have uh, two parents who's, who descend from Africa, you're going to get sort of a black African kid. That's just how we sort of think about race these days. He, he only gets it half right, though, which is the other part of my argument. <laughs> Yeah, so flesh, flesh that out for us because uh, it's important for when we think about these later thinkers. Yeah, okay. So, so when I say that the genealogy of race tends to end with the Enlightenment, there's there's plenty of stuff out now about how about how Kant is is uh, established the category of race, and the the debate is whether or not that taints his whole moral and epistemological philosophy, uh, which is an interesting question to me. But but he, but Kant, um, you know, like every 18th and 19th century f- figure, sadly. Uh, when he's writing about non-Europeans, just these sort of real ugly things pop out. I mean, he's very prejudiced. He shares all the prejudices of his day. But what Kant can't do, he, he works very hard to, to argue basically that there are four races uh, uh, in the greater human race. Uh, the problem is, of course, if you look around, there's incredible diversity and variety. So he's got to make an argument for why there's really just four, Right. Um, and then he and then he sort of ranks them. He says horrible things about you know how they stack up against each other and and who's lazy and who's stupid and all that stuff. Um, what he can't do though is he can't say why that might be the case, right? He's got a pretty good argument for why people look different, for why they have different physical attributes. It's all climactic, right? If you're if you're fitted by nature to live in a hot, humid climate, you're going to be equipped differently than if you live in a cold, dry climate, right? That that makes sense. But why would any one group be smarter or lazier? He, he, he thinks that they are, but he can't say why. Uh, and the argument in my book is that the answer to that question actually is a cultural answer, that the way we link uh, likely characteristics of any individual is if we think we know what cultural group they belong to. Uh, and culture actually, Kant did not have a strong, robust sense of culture, right? That's, that's one of the things that's invented by this expressivist or romantic movement that comes after Kant by people like Herder and Schleiermacher. The idea that what it means to be a human is to actually belong to this cultural unit, uh, which, if you're lucky, is also a national unit. If you're not, you probably have civil wars, right? 
Um, so, so that's the connection. So, so even though people like Herder and Schleiermacher are, are by the standards of their day, not horribly racist, they provide the conceptual framework that we need for how race operates in the modern world, right? They, they, that we, we make these sort of divisions of humanity based on physical markers, but the, but what we think are different about the people are cultural differences. Uh, that cultural piece comes in uh, with Herder and Schleiermacher and those guys. And uh, th- this is really kind of the, the bulk of the book. Uh, Kant is just this kind of important antecedent. We need to, to think about it through. Um, but in, in the book, the way you have it laid out, you move on to questions of the category of religion um, before returning to race for these figures. Uh, and you begin with uh, uh, Schleiermacher, who you've mentioned uh, a few times. Uh, yeah. Some listeners may be familiar with him. Um, but uh, – you do a few things with Schleiermacher here in the book. Uh, perhaps you could start with uh, kind of telling us how generally he's understood uh, or at least kind of depicted in conversations about his role in the study of religion. Um, and then uh, you also kind of, uh, I guess, critique these and you say we need to understand him um, as kind of uh, key to understanding these important shifts in what religion comes to mean. Uh, but those have the, been uh, overlooked or misunderstood, or I, I don't know exactly how you might yeah. want to depict it. But uh, so, uh, who has Schleiermacher been uh, <laughs> in uh, yeah. the study of religion? Um, who do you think he should be uh, in terms of our understanding? Uh, what's his role in this uh, question of the category of religion? Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Okay. Great. So, so when I was in, I got my PhD in 1994, right? So when I was in graduate school. It was sort of the the the, the debates uh, were reaching a climax between um, between um, people who thought that theology was or was not a valid approach to the study of religion, or even belonged in a in a secular university, right? So so this is like Russell McCutcheon, uh, Bruce Lincoln, um, Donald Weeb. All these all these people are sort of uh, were. Starting to crank up their their attacks, and the attacks really were largely on Mircea Eliade, who's the who was the great sort of historian of religion, um, who, who established the field in the fifties and sixties uh, in this country. On their reading, uh, Eliade, although he looked like he was doing comparative religions, was really doing sort of a closet uh, theological move where religion was beautiful and it had meaning and without it you weren't fully human and and he was sort of uh proselytizing in a sneaky way because he wasn't overtly saying i'm a minister he was like just teaching religious studies classes right uh so so the debate was is that okay or do we need to be more scientific and objective uh in other words is it okay to have a theological take or uh and for a long time, it seemed like the worst thing you could call somebody in the study of religion was a theologian. The response to that was, well, if you're, if you don't have a sense of what religion is and its power, then, then, then you're not really studying it. You're, you're misunderstanding what it is and you're just reducing it to something that it's not. Right. So that was sort of the split in the field. Schleiermacher got caught in the crossfire, right? Because Schleiermacher, um, it was taken by people like Russell McCutcheon to be the founding figure of the trajectory of the study of religion that leads us, you know, to Rudolf Otto, who says, if you haven't had this experience, just go ahead and put this book down. You'll never understand it. That's the academic original sin right there. Right. 
and then and then so the trajectory in McCutcheon's mind goes from Schleiermacher to Otto to Eliade. So this sort of dangerous, bad study of religion uh, that avoids scientific criticism and avoids objectivity and avoids the real hard work of um, of historicizing and explaining religion, and instead is just sort of a religious love fest, right? The the English secondary literature on Schleiermacher supports that view of Schleiermacher. It makes him look like he's trying to duck the Kantian categories, the Kantian criticism. Kant says there are certain things you just can't know. And traditionally, Schleiermacher is read as, as saying, yeah, oh, actually, but we do have sort of direct contact with the divine. So we can have sort of this direct point of contact. We can know something about God, which is what Kant had ruled out. If, if you... We live in my small little world in a wonderful time where the critical edition of Schleiermacher is pretty far along and being produced. So there, so we have now great access to better texts. Uh, and in the German world, there's been a lot of uh, work on Schleiermacher. And it, at the end of the day, it actually looks like Schleiermacher is a pretty good Kantian. And he's not trying to do an end run around science to get to some sort of mystical theological point in the study of religion. Um so, so that's, so part of what I want to do just as somebody who spent time working with Schleiermacher is say like, Hey guys, I'm not actually saying that Schleiermacher is a great theorist. I mean, he is a great theorist, but his theory is not a great one. It's essentialist. He thinks everybody has a religion. He thinks it's basically the same thing, you know? Um, but if you're going to attack him, at least get him right. Right. Uh, and so part of what I try to do in the book is set the record straight. And if you get him right, what you realize is that there's that for Schleiermacher religion is not um, like what Williams James said, it's not sort of an individual in in, in solitude uh, in in relationship with whatever they take to be divine. Religion for Schleiermacher is profoundly social. Uh, it only happens in social groups, and you can only have one if you're part of a social group. And and guess what? Uh, if you're if you're a part of a one social group, you have a different religion than if you're part of a different social group, right? That's this cultural piece that I've been talking about. Uh, so if you go back to, to what people think religion is these days, uh, this sort of living world religions that Tomoko Masuzawa talks about, I mean, most of my students uh, will say, hey, it's okay to be a Hindu, just, you know, be an authentic good Hindu. You don't need to be a Christian. You don't need to be a Jew. Just be what's appropriate for your context. That's exactly Schleiermacher's argument, right? So, so that's um, his role, I think, in the genealogy of religion. And if you misread him, as sort of an anti-Kantian, you, you, you don't get his role in constructing how we think about religion today. Now, we might want to criticize that category, but we had to get it, we got to get it right first in order to criticize it. Now, uh, on the flip side, you, you bring in uh, Max Mueller, who um, you kind of argue is the, the opposite of uh, Schleiermacher in terms of what he symbolizes for the study of religion. So yeah. you, uh, just kind of briefly uh, flesh that out. Who who, who does <laughs> Mueller become in the study of religion? Um, and then what happens when you put them actually side by side as you do in the book? Yeah, this was just I, – I probably could have written the book without that section, but I just think this is so much fun. Uh, if this is kind of the, the, um, you know, the religious studies nerd section <laughs> of the book. Uh, so, so, so again, from the time I was in graduate school uh, and people are thinking about how, what's the right way to study religion – if Schleiermacher is always the bad guy who has this sort of theological, touchy-feely, mystical way of studying religion, Max Müller was always held up as the good guy, the founder of the comparative study of religion as a sort of a hard-headed science, right? 
and, and he wrote a, a, a series of essays which are collected under the title The Science of Religion. And I think that's for two reasons. I mean, he was, you know, he was a, a linguist uh, and, and actually did a lot of very important works, much of which still stands in sort of comparative linguistics and what are the relationships between the different family groups and what's the, you know, is German related to ancient Indian languages like Sanskrit and is there an Ur Sanskrit and all that kind of stuff, right? So a lot of that stuff is still good. Uh, and for Muller, like for Schleiermacher, your religion is linked to the language you speak, right? But I think that, that, that just as people didn't read Schleiermacher, they just sort of used him as a club to beat other people up with. They also didn't really read Muller, and they just used him as sort of a hero to put on a pedestal. But if you read him, uh, it's pretty interesting. He, um, uh, he, I think he becomes their hero because of that, his famous sort of dictum that he who knows one religion knows none, right? So you have to compare religions in order to know anything about religion. That's sort of the, you know... I don't know, the, 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 the test of faith of our field. Uh, and then he's got this theory that really, he's got this phrase that religion is, quote unquote, a disease of language. So if you kind of share the enlightenment suspicion of religion, the fact that somebody has called it a disease is going to make you very happy. Um, but if you, I didn't know this when I started this project. Muller, you know, he was German, but he taught at Oxford for his whole career, or most of his career, and sort of as a gift to the English people who had supported him uh, on the hundredth anniversary of the publication of Kant's critique of pure reason, Muller produced an English translation of it, which is, it's a massive book and it's an unbelievable undertaking. Right. And, and he says uh, in this, I've always been a Kantian and, and Kant has been important to me. Uh, and he says, but Kant just gets really one thing wrong. And the thing that he gets wrong is that Kant cuts off access to the infinite and really, I think that humans have this sort of religious um, capacity, and we we can be in direct contact with the infinite. So that so that's just sort of the fun, delicious irony is that the the person who gets beat up, which is Schleiermacher, for trying to do an end run around Kant and putting us in touch with the infinite, is very clear that it, that's what he's not doing. And the person who's sort of held up as the model of not trying to do theology. And is the one who says very explicitly, actually, I want to go beyond Kant and get in touch with the infinite. So that's just sort of a fun, I, again, it's just fun, but it's not just fun, right? Because if you get the genealogy of your field wrong, you're not going to think carefully about the categories you're using. So these guys have both been used as sort of clubs in these fights about how to study religion. Um, and uh, and I, I just think that they're both misread. And if we if we get them carefully, we'll understand better the history of our own discipline, and therefore we'll be able to critique and reflect on our categories more accurately and more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you do a, a good job of kind of laying this out. And uh, listeners who are in religious studies, I think, would certainly benefit from uh, at least even uh, focusing on this first uh, half of half of your book. So um, you return to the, the linked nature of race and religion um, as social categories uh, by bringing in uh, Herder. I, yeah. I don't know German, so I'm not going to even try the, the whole name. But um, so, why do you bring him in? Who was he? Why is he important to this this history that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. So, so Herder is um, German. He's a Lutheran minister, but he's also sort of a uh, a very renowned philosopher in his day. Uh, he had studied with Kant. Uh, he was one of Kant's favorite students. And then he and Kant had the sort of epic falling out um, over a couple of things. 
But one of the things they fell out over was precisely race, right? So Herder attacks Kant's writings on race, uh, and, and he basically says race doesn't exist. It's these artificial categories, and, and by talking about them so much and, and, and arguing that they're real, all you're doing, Kant, is sort of dividing up humanity in ways that leads to conflict. Um, Herder's also... Uh, this is Isaiah Berlin's argument, which I, I buy, I guess. Uh, Herder is in some ways a key figure in the, in the invention of the idea of culture. I mean, Herder's the one who takes the linguistic turn by arguing that it's not the case that you have a thought and then you find the language to put it into, but that you're, he, Herder argues that you're always already thinking in language. Uh, Berlin's beautiful phrase is that 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 language is not just a glove that you put on the hand of thought, right? But that that that, that actually language shapes what it's possible for you to think in the first place. Herder's the sort of the first and best one to make that case, which I think many of us sort of in humanities now take for granted. But the implication of that is, depending on your mother tongue, you will think and experience if you're if the very categories that shape your experience as Kant argues that they do, are linguistic, you're going to experience and think about the world very differently based on what your language is. Uh, and so, and so that's, that's sort of the root of our idea of culture, that people are shaped by their linguistic cultural group, uh, and so they behave, act, think, experience differently based on that group. Uh, so that, I think, plays a key role both in, as I said earlier, how we think about, about racial groups. We think about them, even though we... Th we the hard thing is that everybody knows now in academics, at least, and many people not in academics, that race is a constructed, not a natural category. But we can't help thinking in racial terms, right? That's that's part of what got me going on this project, right? But we, we act like it's a biological category, but it's actually, we use it as a cultural category. And, and you can't do that without Herder teaching us sort of what culture is and convincing us that it's real and important. Yeah. Um, so and this is where you, you start to bring in uh, race and this idea of kind of a modern theological anthropology. Um, so how, how should we understand race beyond Kant? Um, and, and you do this in the book uh, with Du Bois. Um, but how do we start to think about it in more complex ways? Uh, how does that then alter the conceptual frameworks um, the, with which we start to think about modern understandings of race. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for bringing in Du Bois. So, so the the, the Du Bois. Uh, I have a, a a section on the book on Du Bois because he, I think, articulates a definition of race uh, that we use today. Uh, he sort of, I think, puts into words our just sort of gut. Um assumption about about what the concept of race is and how it works. And he's been criticized for this. I mean, Kwame uh, Anthony Apia criticizes him because he thinks the way that that um, that Du Bois talks about race is incoherent. Uh, but whether or not it's incoherent, I think it is the way we think about race, right? So so he's an important exemplar uh, uh, of, of how race functions in the modern world. And basically what he says is, uh, he thinks there's eight races. Uh, but he says, hey, you know, there's these sort of large groups of humans, and he mixes biological and cultural categories. So he talks about blood as part of his racial definition, and then he talks about history, language, and experience 
as part of his definition. This is where Apia attacks him, right? Because Apia says you can't have it both ways. It's either biological or it's not. Uh, nonetheless, I think that, I mean, that's the case I've been making here, right? Is that it is, we think about it or, or don't think about it, but use it in both ways. Um, uh, so uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. So this is, the, within this conversation of race, this is where you uh, also kind of talk about a theological anthropology. Yeah. So maybe also, what, how does that factor in here? Uh, what what do you mean by a theological anthropology? Okay. How do great. we think about difference? Okay, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Difference okay perfect, 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 perfect. Yeah, great. Okay. So 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 one of the things that would happen when I went to graduate school is I thought I was going to be like a historian of religion, like Jacob Neusner, like a not a theological person, but a, but a sort of comparative religionist. But sort of my tribe was going to be German Protestants. And when I got to graduate school, what what they told me was you can't do that, right? If you're going to study German Protestants, you have to get a degree in theology. Which I happily did. I find theology interesting, um, uh, but that that split was still so firm that that it was inconceivable that that I could study Protestantism from the history of religions program, right? Uh, so I, I, it was kind of like doing field work for me. Uh, so so um, so so I studied a lot of theology, and one of the key sort of um, uh, one of the key things that theologians always talk about you know, this nature of God and there's creation and there's the incarnation. One of the things they always talk about is theological anthropology, which just means a theory of human nature, right? What are humans? When theologians talk about this, they usually talk about sin, right? What, are, what is it like to be fallen? Um, nonetheless, I, I, I use the term sort of generically. I think everybody has a, a gut sense, either articulated or not, about what humans are like, right? That's a theological anthropology, uh, so, th- so basically, my argument in the book is that is that the herders and Schleiermachers of the world change our default theological anthropology in the West. Right? That that most of us assume that humans are that it's it's an important part of who you are to know what your cultural group is, and that to be human is this is why they're called expressivists that what it means to be fully human is to be able to express yourself to 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 put into words um or into objects or any any anything that you produce uh manifests who you are and your personality so that if i christian if i read your latest book i learn not only about what you're studying but i learn i learn I hear your voice and I learn something about what Christian is like, right? That's expressivism. I think that's the default. I think we all assume that's true. And it's, and it's, again, that's different than what Kant would say about what humans are or what Hume would say humans are, or certainly what Augustine would say humans are, right? Uh, so this theological anthropology, I think, is the place where race and religion intersect, right? Because, um, uh, because to be fully human means that you can participate in uh, and and contribute to your religious uh, associations. And this is Du Bois's argument. Race is not a bad thing for Du Bois. He doesn't want us to stop thinking of racial categories. He wants every race to be able to express itself fully in the most robust way that that nature and providence intends, right? So the problem... For Du Bois, it's not that we divide people into races, but that some races haven't had the opportunity to make the the particular cultural contribution that only they can make. Uh, and I, th- I think that's that's still the way we sort of think about race and religion. 
and 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 you know what it means to be fully human is to be able to, to without artificial constraints of of oppression, uh, either religious or racial, to be able to make these uh, expressive contributions to the unfolding richness of humanity. I think that's what most people want. Um. So uh, towards the end of the book, uh, I, re I really like this section where you um, you basically see how Schleiermacher's theory of religion holds up to non-Christian data. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so what what does he say when he's thinking about historical religious traditions uh, such as Australian Aborigines or European Jews? How does it how does it work out? Yeah. So this is this sort of so I have to admit that the book. Uh, uh, I think I think I'm right in my argument, but it's a difficult argument to make. So for a lot of the book, I'm just talking about sort of genealogies of the category of race and genealogies of the category of religion, and I'm sort of hoping that readers see the parallels and and see the the similarities. But that's not really an argument, and so the argument really gets made in that chapter where uh, I take Schleiermacher, uh, having now unpacked sort of what he does mean by religion and not what people have said he means. And then I look at his writings. Uh, these are not nearly as well known as his writings on theology. I, I take he wrote a couple of uh, uh, of books. One of them's not even published. One is on um, he makes significant contributions to the discussion about the civic place of Jews in Prussia in the 1800s. And then he writes this sort of – there's a craze for travel literature in his day uh, in Germany. And, he, and he, a publisher asked him to write a book about the, the British settlement of Australia, uh, and he does. Uh, and in that, there's you – know, you can see him talking about the native Australians. Uh, and, and so here's the, the thing I think that – here's – I want to be very clear about this, right? It's very easy to look at people in the 19th century and just – beat them up and say, oh my God, these guys were racist. They're horrible. What, I, what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, we still make use of their categories and, and we shouldn't actually be pointing the finger at them. We should be pointing the finger at us, right? This is what I want scholars of religion and theologians to sort of think about. I'm not saying you know, that, that, we're, that, these, that, that we're still playing the same game that they're playing, but we've cleaned up our language, but it's still the same game, right? So, so Schleiermacher... Uh, in, he's the hero of liberal theology. He's a pluralist. He thinks it's great that there's different religions because people have different um, experiences of God. And the more different experiences, if we talk about them, then we all get a deeper, richer sense of what God is like. All this stuff is very um, appealing uh, to, unless you're a super conservative Christian, it's very appealing, right? Um, but if you look at his writings on Australians and on Jews, it turns out that this category of religion that he's constructed, if you use that as the basis of comparison, makes other people look very bad in comparison to Prussian Protestants, right? Because if what religion is, if healthy religion for Schleiermacher is this ability to, ex to experience and express and contribute to this conversation about our experiences and help enliven other people's experiences by sharing yours and vice versa, right? That's what a healthy religion is for Schleiermacher. If you don't do that, then your then your religion is falling short. And Schleiermacher, uh, to to be sort of contextually accurate, there is no such thing as Reformed Judaism in his day. There's only what we would call Orthodox Judaism. But he looks at them uh, and he sees them. He sees it as overly ritualistic, 
uh, and, he, and, not, and no longer expressing what he thinks are the genuine, beautiful, key insights of Judaism. He thinks it's a dying religion because, because their rituals have become too formalistic. And, they, and, and he actually you know, helps young Jewish rabbis try to set up something along the lines of Reform Judaism by teaching them how to preach sermons. So, so he, but, but, but note that what that means is to be a good Jew, to be a good Jewish religion, you'd have to be a lot much more like Protestantism, right? And the same thing when he looks at the Australians, he just, he looks at them and he says, they're, they're so, they live at such a primitive level. They don't even have really housing and there's not enough of them to gather and have a robust social interaction that their religion just hasn't ever gotten off the ground. Uh, and, and he can't recognize anything about them as having artistic merit. He, he just thinks they're too primitive. Um, so if you use what is this appealing category of religion to many people and, and uh, you know, sort of a living world religion that I think a lot of us still think of when we think we know what a religion is, if you're not very careful and reflective and you use that as what a good sort of normal, beautiful religion is, and you start wielding that category and looking around the world at what you think other people's religions is, you've already stacked the deck against them and they can only come out falling very far short of, you know, Western white Protestants, basically. Um, so there, there's a lot in this book, obviously, that uh, people are just going to have to pick it up to uh, to get into the weeds. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of uh, end our conversation with thinking about the legacy of uh, 19th century German constructions of race and religion for religious studies today. What, what would you say is kind of... Um, key for, for those of us working in the field uh, to think about these thinkers you've been uh, discussing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks. That's, so that is the, the, I mean, the, that's the whole ball of wax right there, right? I mean, it's, it's historically interesting to think about these guys, but the whole point is to try to be sort of self-reflective about how we, we operate in the field of religious studies. Uh, and, and one of the things I try to argue in the book is that one of the, one of the key features of, the modern world, uh, Kant makes this argument that the world is so complex that we have to impose some order on it to do science in the first place, right? Just to, 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 ha to be able to draw connections of cause and effect and, and explanations, we ha just have to artificially impose some order on the world that's not there in nature itself or in history itself. And I, I agree with Kant. And then the question is, what order do we impose? And in the modern world, I think this is part of what the legacy of Kant is, we tend to impose this kind of teleological progressive narrative. So yes, the United States uh, um, uh, has gotten a lot of things wrong. There was the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution where slaves didn't count as full humans and women couldn't vote, and, and, but, 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 but it was founded on the, on the idea of equality and liberty, and we're getting closer and closer and closer, right? That's the sort of myth or the narrative that we tell ourselves in the modern world. Uh, and the book's not arguing about whether that's true or not, but, but the book is trying to point out that if, if, you, if you assume this sort of progressive narrative towards some beautiful end goal, that, that even though we know better than to say ugly things about different races the way Kant does, when you're theorizing difference, which is what scholars of religion do, you look at somebody different and say, 
let me see if I can account for that or explain that, right? When you're theorizing difference, if you've got this progressive narrative at the root of all of your thinking about the world, you can only theorize difference by placing different groups further along or further back on this trajectory of progress. And, and I sort of make this, I know it's a little loose in the last chapter because I can't prove it. I can only point to it in, a, in 10 different ways, right? But when you hear what people say about Islam or about conservative sects of Christianity or about different kinds of religions, the, the, the implied sort of ruler is always this ruler of, of progress. And, you know, Islam will get there, but it's still pre-modern, right? That's, that's basically what the critiques of certain what people call politicized Islam comes down to. And my, my argument is that's, that we, not that we shouldn't be critical of, of and, and, and analytical of religious groups, but that that uh, way of theorizing differences just leads to misunderstandings instead of leading us to think about what's really, what the true differences are, what's really going on there. Well, it's a great book. I hope uh, many people will pick it up. Uh, maybe even think about it for theory and method class or something like that. Thanks. I um, appreciate your careful reading. I know it's not necessarily the easiest thing to get through, so I appreciate your careful reading. Yeah, you could have uh, thrown a couple jokes in there, but uh, otherwise <laughs> it, was, it was pretty pretty enjoyable. Um, so before I let you go, Ted, uh, we usually uh, if, if people are sticking around to listen this long, they're they're probably interested in what kind of things you're up to or have uh, in the pipeline. So. Uh, do you have publications we can expect soon or can you tell us a little bit about projects you might be working on now? Yeah, thanks. That's a, I'm super jazzed actually. So, so I, I do think that we inherit from the early 19th century sort of basic categories of identity and social organization uh, like uh, nationality, race, religion. One of the big ones I think that, uh, is gender. And so I've got this sort of gender project going and, and, and I've got this, I think, uh, fun way in which is that um, Schleiermacher and his, and his whole sort of uh, intellectual cohort worked out a lot of their ideas in these uh, discussion groups that occurred in not only in Berlin, but, but a lot of them occurred in Berlin. Um, and uh, I was looking at these, they get called salons, uh, the, at these salons and, and something stuck out to me, which was amazing, which was that every single prominent salon in the early 19th century in Berlin was run by a Jewish woman. Uh, and so that, and, and, and there's this set of amazing women uh, uh, who, who I think do uh, at great personal cost and with great courage uh, change gender roles that were, that were dominant at the day and, and, and construct something like what we think of now as, as sort of uh, take for granted as gender roles. And, um, and they, they try to work out some form of Judaism or religiosity that's not the traditional observant Judaism that they grew up with. So, so that's a great intersection. Telling the stories of these amazing women is a great sort of intersection, a way of getting at uh, the way that, the way that uh, gender and religion and Judaism have sort of um, taken on some of the forms that we take for granted in the modern world. So that's what I'm working on. Cool. Ted, sounds great. Thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful book, and uh, maybe we'll talk to you about the next one. Thanks so much, Christian. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Ted Vile about his great new book, 
Modern Religion, Modern Race, published with Oxford University Press in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.